1969, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, no booze, uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono released a song titled Give Peace a Chance. Uh, some of you probably remember it. It rose to the charts in the UK and in the US and was quickly adopted by any of the anti-war movements at the time, those that were protesting Vietnam in particular, as an anthem, uh, which was heralded time and again. What, of course, is ironic is that behind the scenes, the band that John had been a part of the previous decade was breaking up mainly because the man that he had been friends with from the time he was 16 years old and him couldn't quite see eye to eye on how they should proceed. I mean, while calling the whole world... Uh, to just give peace a chance, behind the scenes he couldn't keep peace in some of the closest relationships in his own life. And while the general public sang along, hopefully they did not know that they would be told just months later that the band had already broken up, the Beatles were no more. Thanks, Yoko. No. Uh, there's some disagreement on that, but John pretty much said it. It's not my fault. Uh, but isn't that just the way it is? I mean, in the last 500 years of human history, we are told that over 8,000 peace treaties have been signed that are supposed to be eternal. They're supposed to be kept in per, uh, perpetuity. And on average, they last a little over two years. Um, we all want peace. We want life to be settled. We want inner tranquility. But with all the moving parts of life and work and family and finances and politics and relationships and the constant flux of just this age, peace just seems awfully hard to come by. I mean, when one thing is well, something else is deteriorating. And the result for us is both uh, outer disruption as well as inner turmoil. And no amount of Calgon or any other product is seemingly sufficient to take it all away. And yet we are told, scripturally speaking, that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. And so what I want us to see this morning in the time that we have is what is peace and why don't we have any? Uh, what is peace and why don't we have any? Uh, when we think of the word peace, it is an important uh, biblical concept uh, if you look even at our worship service, you see it come up time and time again. Uh, after the confession of sin, we have this declaration, may the peace of the Lord be with you. Uh, we sing at the conclusion of the service, bid your servant go in peace. We have the words of the benediction spoken over us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But what does it mean? I mean, when we think of peace culturally, we normally think of it in, the terms, in terms of the negative, a meaning peace is an absence of conflict. If there's not a war going on, then we're at peace. But biblically speaking, the concept is a whole lot deeper and broader than that. Uh, most of you know the Old Testament word for peace is shalom. And shalom is not just an absence of something, but a presence of wholeness. Something is complete. Uh, so, you know, for instance, if, uh, if you've ever done any masonry work, which uh, I only did in Bible college because I was forced to, uh, that uh, as you're building a wall, maybe you have many bricks or cinder blocks that have to be stacked up one upon the other. They're held together by mortar uh, and oftentimes uh, other materials inside. Uh, but when all have been placed on top of each other, when they have all been uh, sealed together, uh, when all is finished... That is shalom. 
Not the process of the building, but the completion of the thing. Before that, peace is lacking because the wall is incomplete. Uh, so here's an example. Job tells us, you will, know, uh, you will know that your tent is at peace. Okay, so he knows his, his household is at peace. How does he know? Because you will take stock of your property, and you will count your sheep, and you will find nothing missing. So how does he know that his home's at peace? Well, because at the end of the day, he counted all that was his, and everything was there. His world was whole. It was there prospering and safe, and all was well. Shalom, therefore, speaks to that kind of wholeness. It speaks to our well-being. You know, moms know this. A mom has shalom when all her little ones are accounted for and they're all well. Uh, as you get teenagers, when the last one has entered the door at night, then people can get some sleep. But of course, if they're sick or suffering or sinning, when anything is out of place or out of joint, shalom is missing. Peace is missing from the home. I mean, notice this external objective reality of no shalom. There's, there's an external reality, right? Something's missing, something's broken, something's sick. It's an external reality. It brings an inner turmoil. But it's the external thing that is no shalom that leads to the internal reality of no peace. It's the state that causes the emotion. When shalom breaks down, we break down. And I think we've all experienced this. So in that regard, the Old Testament word also then speaks to the restoration of what was broken down. So, you know, a neighbor's animal tears down your nice cinder block wall that you just built. And once the neighbor has paid for it and sent over workers, he has achieved shalom with you. He's restored that which was broken. And so we see that both in physical property, but also in relationships, when things are mended, uh, when forgiveness is given and granted and restoration is made, then shalom has once again entered the relationship. And before that, there is no peace. Your complex life, with all of its moving parts, when they're all together, when they're all at rest, when all is at well, that is shalom. So how often have you experienced that? I mean, I mean, how can we have peace in this way in the midst of a life that is completely tumultuous, that's always breaking down in one way or another? I mean, it's not like we can cordon off our problems in life and just deal with them one at a time. I, I mean, I wish life were that simple, right? You've got one grenade that has gone off, and we're like, as long as we can deal with that, then all will be well. But, of course, problems can't be sealed off one from the other. We have this bad thing happening, and in the midst of trying to fix that, this other bad thing is happening and falling apart. We make headway, headway here only for us to, you know, have to retreat back here, and things, again, are not mended. We write a hit song about peace, and the band breaks up. Nothing works out the way it's supposed to. But deep down, we all want that, right? We want that kind of wholeness. We want to be able to sit at the end of the day and be at rest. To know that all is well. That nothing is lacking. Nothing is out of joint. Nothing is under threat. And nothing will be broken. And so because we want that feeling, we have all sorts of ways that we seek to find it. We want the fix, and so we go about seeking remedies to get it. We want peace in this world, and so 
Because things are out of joint, we try to cover up the problems in one way or another. For the external things that happen to us, we tend to push for things that will bring us security and safety, you know. So if there are problems of life, if things can go wrong, well then I'll just buy a lot of insurance, right? That, that will help. Or I'll have a large savings account. Or I'll make sure my retirement is stacked up so that when I get there, then all will be well. You know, I'll live in a good neighborhood with a good police force and a good voting base, and that will then bring me peace of mind. But of course, markets change, neighbors move, and believe it or not, some politicians don't even keep their word. Um, and so these external ways of coping don't always work, but for relational ways of uh, trying to find peace, we tend, interestingly enough, to push for fairness. We we want a little bit of tit-for-tat in our relationships. We want to be made whole, and so we require people to treat us fairly, to do right by us, to not rip us off. We're not going to let anyone take advantage of us because we want to make sure there's some balance in this relationship and we're not somebody's rug to walk on. It's interesting that that kind of tape is on constant subliminal replay in our minds and it leads to a weird sort of paralysis of spirit. It leads to all kinds of deep resentments and depression and a low-grade anger that pops up in the weirdest places and for the weirdest reasons. It's when you begin to realize your parents are right all along and that life's not fair. People aren't paying up what they're supposed to and you're not getting what's due to you. It's like the neighbor who throws the leaves from their side of the yard into the neighbor's yard because the neighbor's the one with all the trees and it's not their problem to pick up the leaves. I mean, if there's no justice, there will be no peace, we think. Because we want what's fair, we have this weird way of relating to one another that causes, notice, relational breakdown. It never brings the inner peace that we want. It just causes turmoil elsewhere. And so notice what tends to bubble up from the lack of peace in our lives, these things that Paul has already told us about. The works of the flesh, rivalry and strife and dissensions and divisions and envy and pride and greed and self-promotion. All these ambitions that rise up, all because we are a fallen people in the midst of a fallen world where things are always falling apart and we want some modicum of rest. We want things to be well and whole and right and we just can't get our hands around it. And our own sin causes its own breakage and pain in the world. And then other people's sin add to the problems we've already created. And we get hurt and what's worse yet, we cause hurt. And not only is there no peace, there's this deep down sinking reality that we're in some sense responsible for the lack of peace in our own lives and the lack of peace in the people's lives that we love. And that causes all sorts of turmoil within us. We know deep down that somehow we're going to have to answer for this, which leads to all sorts of anxiety and tumult. External peace, history shows, is unachievable, but internal peace might even be more difficult to get to. And yet, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is peace, and he doesn't mean that the fruit of the Spirit is peace once everything's all put together the way that it's supposed to be. So how does that work? I want us to see next how Christ gives us peace. You'll notice from the beginning of the Bible, the very goal of your life 
That, that thing you're seeking so bad, that desire to sit down and be at rest for all to be well, it's why you were made. I mean, that was the goal of your existence. Man was to do his work, to go about the labor God had given him, and when it was completed, to sit down with God and others and live at peace, in complete shalom, the world project being completed, everything being brought to its final point, and everyone celebrating in the goodness and the glory thereof. The goal of the world is shalom. The goal of your life is to bring it to pass. But it was all, of course, based on man staying somehow in right relation to God. You can't have peace and be at war with the one who's made all things. You can't be at peace and not have some sort of peaceful relation with the God whose name is peace. And so from the beginning, once man decided to go his own way, that whole peace was ruptured and shattered, and it didn't just break down the relationship between him and his maker. It broke down the relationship between him and the other creatures in the world, but also his relationship between himself and the world itself. Even it wasn't working well with him. And so what was intended to be a peaceful existence, or at least to end with that sort of result, became one of constant tension. And those things that you feel day in and day out are a direct result of that story that began long, long ago. God's presence, we are told, is the blessedness of every condition. But it's hard to stay in that presence when you don't like it when you're not attracted to it, when you're not holy like it is holy. And so Adam fled from his presence. Israel constantly struggled with staying in the presence of God no matter how many sacrifices were given. It's even why peace is so elusive now. But the great hope, of course, of the Old Testament was that one day a king would come and bring peace for the nation and through the nation the world. I mean, on all their worst days, they had these songs and these poems and these stories about the day that would come when everything would be right. I mean, it's why you love fairy tales, or why you should, if you don't, for shame. Shame on you. That that king would come and he would bring shalom for every Israelite and for every man, woman, boy, and girl in the world. He would be called, we are told in Isaiah, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of his kingdom, there would be no end, but also notice, and no end to the peace that he brings. Once it was brought, it would remain, and it would never be overturned again. The wolf would lie down with the lamb, and the panther with the kid, and the calf and the lion, and the fatted uh, livestock would dwell together and a little child would lead them. I mean, cows and bears would graze together and wouldn't, wouldn't be dinner for the other. The lion would eat hay and be satisfied and an infant would play over the den of a snake and have no fear. No hurt and no harm would ever come on the city that was built. And during that time, it wouldn't just be a place of safety, but prosperity. You wouldn't just be safe from outward harm. You would have everything you need, each with his own vine and each lying under his own fig tree. He would have the delights of this world at the ready. And so Israel dreamed 
And yet, of course, their own history shows that those dreams seem so unattainable time and time again, cast out from their own land, overrun by others, under the dominion of people that hated them, lack and war and division. Even the nation itself, much like the Beatles, could not stay together. And so when Jesus is born and enters into the story of this world, we hear even at his birth announcement that this one who happens to be born in the city of David would bring peace on earth. And in his ministry, he promised that his peace, his very own peace, according to John 14, he would leave with us, and therefore we did not need to be dismayed or in any sort of turmoil. And yet, as we look at his life, it doesn't seem to be a peaceful existence at all. Hated by many, betrayed by his own, constantly having to correct and to corral even those closest to him, all the while ultimately leading and proceeding to a cross, even as he gives those words to his disciples, the very next act of his life will be laying down his life on their behalf. But it is that cross that becomes for us, according to Paul, the very instrument that brings peace. It was here that all the unrest between God and man was finally dealt with. It was here that every sin that you've committed, every dark secret that you hold, everything that keeps you from looking certain people in the eye or being able to approach God when you think of it, all of that was put to rest once and for all. It was all poured out on the sun, and God now looks at his own children without the slightest bit of disdain or dismay. He finds no fault in them. It was on that cross that your sins that resulted in the disorder of this world and your own lack of wholeness and peace even now were forgiven forever. But it wasn't just in his dying, but in his life that he lived en route to that cross and the resurrection that he accomplished at its conclusion. This one lived a life of peace because he lived a life of perfect righteousness. All those things that you and I were supposed to do from the beginning, all of the tasks that were given to us, all of the, the doing and being of, uh, of, uh, of a true human that was to bring this world to completion and bring it to a place where we could finally put our feet up and have a drink and have nothing to fear. Christ did each and everything that was required. He was the one obedient man who suffered for all the disobedient men, in order that they might live. And by that righteous life, he restored in us what is lacking. He completed the human project. He's done all that needs to be done by you, and he's done it for you. Which is why Paul says, he himself is our peace. What I have not been, he has been already. What I feel I'm lacking, he has already accomplished. What I feel is to my demerit, he has already paid for. And he gives you and I that life with all of the rewards that go along with it as a gift. In Christ, you see, you are at peace. You are whole and complete. There is shalom 
in your world. Now, hear me. There is shalom, complete and total wholeness, in your life already. Now, your inner turmoil may still exist, but that's not because the outer issues have not been resolved. God has dealt with everything that you need and given you all that is required already in his Son. You are wholly righteous in the Son. You are wholly accepted in the Son. You are already welcomed into the new creation. There is a spot already reserved for you. Uh, The one who has gone before us, the first fruits of that resurrection, is already there waiting in his new body, assuring that you too will be there also. You're already adopted into the family. And because of that, you are called to live out of all of that objective reality. This is a fact. Your life is complete and whole, and you are at rest. And because of that, your emotions can be as well. That's a little trickier, of course. But that's why the Bible calls us to fight, if you will, for the peace that is already ours, to live in the peace that's already been accomplished for us. Everything is all right, even if it doesn't seem like it by your current circumstances. After saying farewell to his disciples, Christ went and disarmed all the principalities and powers that were against us by disarming the accusation that they hung over your head and that you hang over your own head even now. There's no more that can be said against you. There's no enemy that can come against you that will ever win. There's not a word that can be spoken that will talk God out of what he's already accomplished to draw on your behalf. Jesus, your peace is seated at the right hand of God in his presence even now, which means that through all the changing scenes of your own life, that doesn't change. Your insurance, if you will, and your assurance is seated at the right hand of God. Your righteousness is at the right hand of God. Your security is at the right hand of God. Your future is settled at the right hand of God. No matter what happens tomorrow with the stock market, or with your job, or in your living room. No matter how unsure you are on the inside, no matter how messy your outer world is, God is fine with you. God loves you. All is his, and thus, all is yours. And the rest that he enjoys, he's given you as well if you're willing to partake of it. Notice Christ says, my peace I give to you. As we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, you see this peace is a gift. And once you realize it is a gift of grace, that it's already been given and granted, not because of anything you've done, then the calm of interpeace can follow. Then your insecurities can finally be quieted. Your guilt is removed. Your shame that you may still feel no longer exists before the face of God. He is not ashamed to look you in the eye. Your future is certain. Your angst about all the uncertainties of life really has been removed if you are willing to believe it. You see, he doesn't give peace the way the world does, as Christ says. 
Peace in the world is always negotiated and conditional and always bound to break down. As long as things go well, the peace I offer you, I will give to you. It's typically how it goes in our relationships. But his is incalculable and unconditional. No matter what he says, you are mine. And no matter what happens, you are going to make it. And he frames that declaration by a death, a resurrection, and an ascension. This is how at peace you should be. And he invites you to look at the cross and to see him hanging there. Nothing will stop him from bringing you to an end that is whole and complete and at rest. And that is why he can say to you, don't let your heart be troubled. Neither be afraid. He says it to his disciples, and they're going to watch him die on a Roman cross moments from then. And he means every word of it. You don't have to be troubled at all. And it's because of the peace that he's going to grant through this gift. Every week we're dismissed with the assurance of that fact. We can go in peace because God is for you. That this relational problem has been solved once and for all. Even if you don't get it yet, God gets it. Your life really is at peace objectively. We're so caught up in Christ's for us sacrifice and life. We are so blessed by God because of that. We are so kept by him because of that, that we can say that his face has turned toward us with favor, that he shines his blessed presence on us in every condition. His grace is for us, and because of that, he grants us peace, his very own. And because of that fact, we conclude with this. As we receive the gift, he invites us to pass the peace. Peace is a gift, and you'll notice Paul says it becomes, by the work of the Spirit, a virtue in our lives. Since we are okay with God and all is well for us, we no longer need to scrap for the same sorts of justice that everyone else is scrapping for. We don't need to protect ourselves or to get our way or jostle for position. We can forgive. We can let others win. We can even lose from time to time and not get the good end of the deal. We have peace, according to Scripture. Therefore, we make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, our Lord says. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, the apostle teaches us. Strive for peace. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Notice it's not your peace, it's Christ's own peace. And he says, let it rule your heart. Let it sit there as an arbiter, as a referee saying, what would bring peace in the situation? Not what would work out best for me or what would make me happy, but because Christ has granted me peace because all is well in him and it's been gifted to me. I can now give peace to others because I have nothing left, in one sense, to gain. Life is complete. I'm whole in the Savior. Surely in our civil lives, peace is made by everyone keeping the rules, right? And if they don't keep the rules, then we have people as ministers of justice who enforce, hopefully, uh, the rules, and uh, whether it be the police, the military, or so forth. And in that sense... 
that sort of societal and civil peace, it's a great blessing. But of course, the gospel gives us a right to live differently than just what we expect out in the civil society. It gives us peace based not on justice, but on grace. And if we want peace in our lives, we can't be waiting around for others to get it right because it's going to be a long, long wait, as you've already found out. I mean, one of my biggest frustrations in life is that people just won't get it together. And if they would, then I could be happy. You know, if my kids would just obey like they're supposed to, if, you know, if the whole world around me would just fit in line with what I wanted, then I could finally rest. But of course, the gospel opens us up to a completely different way of life. God wasn't waiting around for us to get it right to bring peace. He brought it when we weren't even looking for him. And in fact, we resisted the peace that he brought. And if we are in any sort of interpersonal conflict, if there's any unrest in our life, there's a breaking down of relationships, we need to revisit that same cross that God planted in the earth to make peace with us. And remember that blessed are the peacemakers. God is in the peacemaking business. He's not in the fault-finding business or the nitpicking business or the nagging business or the, hey, I'm just pointing it out so everyone knows business. He's in the business of coming after sinners and forgiving and forgetting for their benefit and for the peace of the whole. Brothers and sisters, may we be agents of peace. The reality is that you can live at peace once you realize you can't change anybody. And you can hardly change yourself, and you've tried. But you can love people. You can forgive sinners. You can bring peace where there's conflict, not by making sure everything's fixed, but being the first one instead to forgive. We can either wait for things to be solved, or we can provide what is lacking. And people of peace... Join in the reconciliation of Christ. And his peace was brought to us by gift. That gift is what's made us whole. So may we do the same for others. Your peace right now is an objective reality. May you experience the blessing of it by distributing it and displaying it for others for the sake of Christ. Let's pray.